Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome back to After the Ending, the all-original After the Ending, after a few weeks of bonus episodes there. Uh, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how does it feel to be back doing what we do best, making up ridiculous endings for movies that we love? It it feels good, but also a little bit nervous again because it's got to get into the right headspace. Right. It's different from, you know, it's one thing to be on, you know, on the edge about answering trivia questions. It's a whole other thing to, uh, you know, put our, our best endings forward. Yeah, be creative again. Right, right. <laughs> well, I think I'm up for the challenge. I, th- I think you yeah. are too, so I yes. think we'll do okay. And it's, uh, it's it should be a good uh, a good return episode. He's got some treats in store. It should be indeed. Why don't you tell people what we have in store for them? Well, we will be doing our top 10 films of 1941, which is a very good year for films. And we have our regular random mini feature, which should also be a lot of fun. And as for the after the endings, we'll be doing, I think it's two films from 1997. Yeah, it's funny how that worked out, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah pick, we picked them at random the other week, but both from the same year. It's uh, the sci-fi horror Event Horizon and Goodwill Hunting, the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck film. Yes, and Event Horizon was actually one of your top ten picks from the 1997 when we did it in our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. It was pretty it high on your was. list, as I recall. Yes, yeah, uh, I can't remember. I think it was like number four or something. Number yeah, three, it was about, I think it was four, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this should be interesting. Yeah, most enjoyable film for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think I need to revisit it. I remember it's a, it's a movie I saw in theaters. I didn't love it. I didn't dislike it. It was just, it was very intense. I remember that yeah, it was yeah. definitely a scary, you know, intense movie. So uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting it. But meanwhile, yeah. why don't we go ahead and jump into our endings then? So Phil, tell people, take us through the events of Event Horizon. Events and Events Horizon, yes. it's uh... yeah, right. I had that when I was writing it down. Okay, so it's. Uh, I'm going to try not to. I'm sorry. I'm going to try not to interrupt you every time you say something about going liberate tutta me because that's pretty much all I remember from the movie is a guy holding his eyeballs and <laughs> saying that. I know that's what I, I had that written at the top because I thought that my cough. So it's liberate tutta me ex in ferris. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's even in the film that much. To be honest, it's like once or twice, but I remember the yeah. guy's holding his eyeballs when he says it, and that always stuck with me because that's it. Yeah, just pulling your eyeballs out while saying. When you Latin. see a guy holding his own eyeballs, for some reason that that sticks with you. Mm. I think Latin is also the go-to language in that situation. Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. you know, if you're gonna be possessed by some sort of malevolent spirit and carve out your own eyeballs, you kind of have to speak in Latin. You know, yeah. a dead language is the perfect thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, anyway, continue. Okay, yeah. 2047, a distress signal from the event horizon is picked up. Uh, this was a ship which went on its maiden voyage seven years before and disappeared and was never seen again. So a rescue ship called the Lewis and Clark is sent out. I always thought Lewis and Clark was a good name for a ship. I like that. Yeah. It's crewed by, and here's where I'll give you just the names, because there's lots of names and the people playing them. Captain Miller, Lawrence Fishburne. Lieutenant Stark, played by Jolly Richardson. Pilot Smith, uh, played by Sean Pertwee, who's uh, really good in it. Medic Peters, Kathleen Quinlan, Engineer Ensign Justin, played by Jack Noseworthy. Then we've got the trainee doctor, DJ Jason Isaacs, and the rescue tech, Cooper, played by Robert Jizak. And they're accompanied by Dr. William Weir, who's Sam, played by Sam Neill, and he designed the Event Horizon. So they're heading off into space, and while on the travelling, Sam Neill explains that the Event Horizon used new gravity drive, which creates a black hole which is used to create a wormhole and uses a bit of paper, six pens through it, which uh, was then used in Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. They used a, a, a shorter version of that scene. So they reach the event horizon, find the crew's dead, and it looks like a massacre's taken place. While they're there looking around, the gravity drive reactivates, causing a bit of an explosion, which damages the Lewis and Clark. And Justin is pulled inside the gravity drive. They end up rescuing him, but he's catatonic. He wakes and tries to kill himself, and they put him in a stasis pod. And after that, one by one, the crew starts seeing things, things that scare them, things that aren't there. So it's uh, it's not looking good. The events horizon video log shows the crew going insane. And the captain says, as we've already mentioned it, the Liberate Duteme, which means save yourself from hell. It looks like the gravity drive 
flipped the ship into hell itself and it's come back alive and the event horizon's now alive and it's torturing everybody on board. Miller knows that they need to destroy the event horizon, but we are now possessed, blows up the Lewis and Clark, killing Smith, and Cooper is blown into space. Peters and DJ are killed and we start a 10 minute countdown that will return Event Horizon to hell. Cooper manages to return using some nifty uh, oxygen burst from his suit. Weir shoots at him because of decompression and is sucked out of the ship. Miller, Stark and Cooper are alive and they decide to split Event Horizon in two. But Miller is attacked by Weir who managed to make it back. But Miller fights through and detonates the bomb sacrificing himself. Uh, the survivors are in the front of Event Horizon which is now a lifeboat which is blasted free in the explosion. The rear section is pulled back to hell when the, the engine kicks in. 72 days later, rescuers reach the event horizon with the survivors on and bring Stark, Cooper and a catatonic Justin out of stasis. Stark thinks she sees Weir, but she wakes up. That part had been a dream. And she's given a sedative and the doors close on the survivors. And that's event horizon. Dun, dun, dun. All right, that is event horizon, as you said. So let's, uh, let's, see, uh, let's see what we've come up with for it, shall we? Like I said, yes. it's been a few weeks since we've done our endings. Let's see, let's see if we've still got the old magic, shall we, Phil? Yes, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Let's, <laughs> let's see if it makes us spout Latin. All right. Uh, so, uh, what have you got for your day after? All right. Well, Cooper, Stark, and Justin are immediately given a full medical treatment. Stark is in shock. Justin is still comatose, and Cooper is relatively unscathed. After days of intense therapy and medical tests, Cooper and Stark are released from the government medical complex, but are still in custody as the government wants to debrief them. They recount their story, and Stark regularly breaks down crying or falls into fits of terror. Cooper, however, is cool, calm, and collected. After a few weeks, the hearings conclude, and the government decides to chalk up the events to space-induced group hallucinations. With Stark unable to shake the events, she is remitted to a mental hospital, while Cooper returns to work at NASA, or whatever the 2047 equivalent of NASA is, and Justin remains in a coma. And that's where I'll leave it for now. Yes, okay, very good. How about you? Uh, mine's, mine's a little bit similar. Uh, we have Stark and Cooper are kept in a medical unit where they're also debriefed. Uh, due to the uh, the stories as to what happened on the ship, they are kept under psychiatric care, although the fact that their stories tell the same events is passed up to the uh, high levels of the organisation they work for. Justin is still in the coma and is kept in stasis, and the front of the event horizon, which was picked up when they got the rescuers, is taken in to be analysed. And that's my day after. All right, so not too different yet. Mm, yeah, it's, a, it's all nice and calm, I think, yeah, before yeah, the storm. That, that might change. It may or yeah. may not change. We'll see. Okay, so what's, uh, what's your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Justin is still comatose, and Stark finds herself plagued by nightmares. She replays the events of their event horizon. I keep saying events and event horizon, but a, I guess it's just going to happen. So. It's a hard one, yeah. She replays the happenings of the event horizon <laughs> mission in her mind over and over again. She begins to fixate on the fact that Cooper was unscathed by the events. She becomes obsessed with the idea that Cooper has somehow brought back some kind of presence or entity ah. from the hell ship. Nothing else could explain how calm and unaffected he was by the events. She tells her therapists about her theory, but of course they don't believe her. So she escapes from the mental hospital and begins hunting Cooper, determined to stop the demon inside him from whatever he's come to Earth to do. Ooh. And that's the immediate aftermath. So. Oh, nice. That's shape enough. Thank you. Like yes. All right. How about yours? Okay. I do, I do like the character Cooper. I think he's one of my favorite ones in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. good stuff. Okay. So my immediate aftermath. Cooper's fine. He has the occasional nightmare, but he's back at work, although he's still not clear to go further than Mars. He keeps checking in on Stark. She seems fine and finally got re released from psych. However, she keeps seeing Weir, but tells no one. Justin is still in the coma, but he begins to show signs of brain activity. The wreck of the event horizon shows no abnormalities and in a slight oversight is sent to be recycled. It is destined to be chopped up and become part of many other spacecraft. It is only as the years tick by will the true nature of the event horizon make itself known. Stark, meanwhile, while returning home, sees Weir about to attack her. She manages to fend him off and kills him, but her vision clears and she sees that it was in fact Cooper. Her mind breaks. Mm. I like that you said it was a slight, uh, a slight miscalculation to yes, <laughs> recycle yes. the event horizon. Yes. All right. Some, somebody, you know, filed the wrong paperwork. The wrong right, place. right, right. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so what about your long term? All right, well, Stark goes into hiding. NASA puts Cooper under protective detail after Stark's therapist tells them that she may be planning to harm him. But when nothing happens for a few weeks, security starts to get lax. 
With security waning, Stark sneaks into Cooper's apartment and surprises him, knocking him out with an injection. Wild and beyond sanity, Stark disembowels Cooper, trying to remove whatever's inside him. But, of course, there's nothing there. As Stark stands over Cooper's dead body, security bursts in and shoots her multiple times, killing her instantly. The autopsies revealed there was nothing abnormal about either of the bodies. Shortly thereafter, Justin wakes up from his coma. He slips out of the hospital and makes his way into the bowels of the NASA building. He sneaks into a testing lab where a massive engine prototype is under construction. Under the guidance of the presence within him, Justin modifies the engine, expanding the warp field to envelop the entire Earth. Justin gouges his own eyes out and then activates the engine, sending the entire planet straight to hell. Holy crap. And that's the end. That went big. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seemed like fitting because, you know, that, that the movie kind of ends on a dark note. Yeah, and Of yeah. course, I had to fit in the eyeball thing there because I'm yeah. clearly fixated on that. Got to get but, the eyeballs out. Yeah, I thought that would be kind of an interesting uh, way to wrap things up with the entire planet being sent to the hell dimension. Yeah, there's no coming back from that. Not really, no. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So what have you got? Bring us home, Phil. Okay. Stark, keeping a semblance of normality to the outside world, keeps seeing Weir wherever she goes. And she tries to kill him whenever she can. She's very successful at this, but it ends up never being Weir, and he keeps returning. She's eventually caught, and when it goes to trial, it turns out she's the most notorious serial killer of all time. In her cell, she keeps seeing Weir, his face covered in crosses. Justin wakes. He has no memory of the events on Event Horizon, yet within him something dark, something terrible begins to grow. He feels a steady pull from out in the stars. He eventually manages to get back on board a ship and kills the crew. He sets coordinates and enters stasis once more. It will be many years until he reaches LV-223. <laughs> he will be reunited with the, the engine of Event Horizon, which will get back from its journey through dimensions, and something new, something dreadful will be created. The parts of Event Horizon will also be drawn back to the core. The Prometheus, the Covenant, Nostromo, Sulaco are just a few. Nice. I like that. Very nice. As soon as you said LV-223, I knew you were tying it into the Aliens universe, yeah, so I yeah. really like what you did there with the, uh, with the different ships. It makes so much sense. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's just because uh, the alien themselves, they're like something from hell. They absolutely, absolutely. You know, if somebody's going to weaponize hell. Yeah, it's a great tie-in. I love it. Uh, can I just, I'd just like to point out, though, Phil, we've been gone from doing regular episodes for three weeks, and the very first thing you do when you come back is turn somebody into a serial killer. Yeah, and the, the most notorious serial killer of all time. <laughs> right, she killed, right. she killed just, hundreds and hundreds of people. We need some, uh, some astute listener out there to do a, uh, do a tally for us and see how many serial killers Phil has, uh, has yeah, created. How many creating? Right. How many have I enabled? Right, right. I'm very, I'm very curious. Oh All dear right. God! What's my goodwill ending? Goodwill <laughs> going to be like? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> oh boy. So, all right. Well, that's going to be our ending for Event Horizon. Phil, do you have any fun trivia about the film? Yes, I do. They, uh, it was a Paul W. S. Anderson film. Probably my favorite one of his. Uh, the shot of the space station over Earth used a third of the film's budget. Uh, it took ten weeks to do and lasts only forty-five seconds. Wow. Yeah, it's. Uh, a lot of money for that that seems like not the best use of money though do you know what i no. mean like all right we're gonna we're gonna use two-thirds of the film for the film and then one-third of the budget for yeah. you know this one shot like yeah i think i think they must have wanted a great big a wow shot right it's, it's not quite a wow shot i think remember it's, it's quite a good shot looks right. all right but yeah mm, but right. yeah could yeah could have spent it better uh the original cut was 130 minutes long and was graphically violent it was so violent that the studio ordered Anderson to make cuts of 30 minutes. Uh, apparently, the I was going to say, stu- it, and the, the, the second cut wasn't graphically violent? Yeah, I seem I to recall it being fairly, Cause, fairly uh, graphic. Some of the test audiences didn't like it because they used, especially in the big uh, blood orgy scene, you know, the, you only see snippets of it when they're right. looking at the, the captain's log. Gotcha. Uh, they, they used real-life amputees and porn actors uh, for that to make oh. it look like people getting their arms cut off to look more realistic and things like that. And, Interesting. Yes. However, this uh, most of the footage is now lost, so there can't be a proper definitive director's cut. It's a bit sad, but from the sounds of it... You know, Maybe not a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the spacesuits they use weigh 65 pounds or 30 kilograms, wow. and standing in, in them too long could cause back injury, and yeah. you couldn't sit down in them because of the backpack on it. Oh. So, so That's another good planning, really, isn't it? Yeah, seriously. Uh, the Event Horizon model used a complete X-Wing as part of the antenna array, and apparently you can see it early on during the first sweep that the Lewis and Clark does over the ship. Cool. Which I've never noticed that. And Clive Barker was con- consulted on the film during pre-production. I can understand that. Because it does have a Hellraiser vibe to it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, and also it was produced entirely in the UK, even the special effects. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Yeah, nice little thing, that. Very cool. All right, well, then that wraps up Event Horizon. Why don't we move on to Goodwill Hunting? Yes, let's do it. All right. 
Well, I'm going to just warn you that, um, you know, this is a movie that, that, as we know from previous episodes, I get emotional easily. And this is a movie that always makes me cry. And even just writing up my endings, I was getting like welled up. So I'm going to I'm going to do all this and I'm going to do my best to keep my composure. But I make no promises. OK, I'm not sure what you're going to think of my ending now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, boy. OK, well, here we go. Goodwill Hunting 1997, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, for which they won an Oscar and directed by Gus Van Zandt. Stars Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Minnie Driver, and, of course, the late, much-missed Robin Williams. So, 20-year-old Will Hunting is a janitor working at MIT. He's a typical Southie Boston guy, hanging out with his friends, drinking, fighting, but he also has a genius-level intellect. When Professor Lambeau, played by the great Stellan Skarsgård, posts a near-unsolvable math equation on his chalkboard as a challenge to his students, Will solves it anonymously. Professor Lambeau posts another one, and Will solves it again, but he's caught in the act. He flees before Professor Lambeau can talk to him. That night, Will meets Skyler, played by Minnie Driver, a graduating Harvard student, and gets her phone number. And, of course, one of the great movie lines of all time, <laughs> I got her number. How do you like them apples? How do you like them apples? Um, well, when that was Will... a dreadful impression. We are back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be an episode of yeah. After the Ending without one How of those. How would you like them apples? That was me trying to do a Boston like, Is that supposed to be like John Adams? Like, I mean, yeah. what, you know. How would you like them apples? <laughs> I'm Matt Damon. <laughs> it says Matt Damon as an old man. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I got no teeth. I can't eat yeah. apples. But how do What's you like going them? on? I'm stuck on Mars. I can't get off. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, anyway, when uh, when Will gets arrested after a fight, Lambeau comes to his court hearing and gets a bargain that sees Will freed if he agrees to study with Professor Lambeau and go into therapy to deal with his anger issues. After a number of unproductive therapy sessions, Lambeau finally brings in Dr. Sean McGuire, played by Robin Williams, who is a former colleague of his and they are now estranged. He challenges Will and gets him to open up. They help each other, as, and Will begins to date Skyler, and Will challenges Dr. McGuire to look at his own life, as he's been sort of stuck in one place since the death of his wife from cancer. Will begins to self-sabotage, screwing up several job interviews that Lambeau sets up for him. Will and Skyler break up after she asks him to move to California with her, where she's going to Stanford. Eventually, we learn that both Dr. McGuire and Will were victims of child abuse, and Dr. McGuire helps Will realize that it wasn't his fault. Dr. McGuire reconciles with Professor Lambeau and takes a sabbatical to travel the world. And as the film ends, we see Will driving to California to reunite with Skyler. Yes. And that is Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, it's a very uh, good film. And I will say, I don't think the summary does it justice, but if you haven't seen Goodwill Hunting, you really should. It's a really terrific film. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, Damon and Affleck, they just, that was. That was what brought them to us, wasn't it? That made them big. It pretty much was the film that before that movie, nobody had ever heard of either. Yeah. And I remember when it came out and I was like, oh, there's a new Robin Williams movie out. He's with some kid. Like, yeah. you know what yeah, I mean? It's like, funny, isn't it? I mean, they had both been working actors to that point, but nobody knew who any of them were. And then, of course, after that, the Oscar, when they received the award and they were all excited on stage, I mean, they basically became household names overnight, you know? Yeah. You, f you forget how sudden the their arrival was on the scene. Yeah, it was really, it was really something, actually. It was, kind of, it was, a, it was a, fun, a fun moment, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. In, in the history of Hollywood, if you A will. nice time, a good, a good way to hit it big. I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah, and it's funny, I think back to 1997, I don't think Goodwill Hunting made my top 10 list from that year. No. But I think I recall that being one of the years where there were so many good films that I, I had like. That's right, it was, wasn't it? The list. But it was definitely a film that I, I love from that year and, you know, easily in, in my top, you know, maybe 20 or 25 of the year yeah. for sure. And it, even, even if it's not in your, your top 10, top 20, it's still, you, you've still got to admire it for how how well made it is and, and what a great script yeah absolutely it's really terrific yeah. terrific stuff all right well phil i i'm i'm anxious and nervous to hear what you're gonna do to my <laughs> beloved boston characters here so why don't you uh take us through your day after okay so will heads off and drives to california but never makes it seriously yeah no straight from the opening right god it's dreadful couldn't even this. build up to it no i just well it's just you know just drives off at the end of the film boom <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's. Oh, my day when I crashed a car. <laughs> was it because he was so old that he drove off the road because his, his vision failed him? That could be it, yeah, because it was a time portal which made him age. Right. No, no, that's not it. Oh, that's the third film. Okay. <laughs> he, he's in a serious crash and is in a coma for several months. Reports, though, of his high IQ are noted, and a memo was sent to a secret government departments. He will be born anew and has mo moved to a secure location. And that's my day after. Uh, well, I, I think I, I think I know where you're going with this, but yeah, I, as yeah. always, you tend to surprise me. So maybe yeah, well, it's, it's not it's not a Doc Hollywood kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching Doc Hollywood the other day. It's so random. Uh, I quite like that film. I do too. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, uh, that's so. What's uh, your day after? All right. Well, in in my day after, Will does arrive safe and sound in California. So ah, interesting. Yeah, Will arrives in California and tracks Skylar down. At first, she's excited to see him, but then she reveals that she's still mad at him for breaking up with her. Will is heartbroken, and at first, he responds angrily and storms out. He drives aimlessly for a while until he comes across a group of high school kids playing a game of pickup football on a school football field. He joins the game and gets muddy, beaten up, and exhausted. And ultimately, he's exhilarated. He realizes that he's overreacted once again and goes back to Skylar. She reluctantly lets him in, but he sits her down and explains everything to her, including his past and the breakthrough he had with Dr. McGuire. Skylar relents and accepts Will back into her life. Ah. And that's... That's where we'll leave it for now. That's nice. That's uh, I yes. can see that one being more likely to happen. <laughs> well, maybe slightly more realistic mm. than yours, but yeah, only that, only probably, a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's see where you, <laughs> let's see where else you take it. Then give us your immediate aftermath. Okay. As Skylar didn't know that Will was heading to California, and Chucky didn't expect to hear from Will, his disappearance is not noted, as both think he's with the other. Skylar continues with her studies. Chucky keeps working away, going to bars, hanging around with his friends, having a good time, making an honest wage. Sean keeps to his promise and is travelling the world, visiting exotic places and becoming calmer and more sure of himself and becoming a better person and wishing he'd done it years ago. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. What have you got? Mine isn't entirely different from that. A a couple Mm. of similarities. So Dr. McGuire sets out to travel the world. He starts off by going to all the places his wife loved, Paris, Italy, London. But eventually he starts to travel to new locales that he's never been to before. Almost a year later, while on a beach in the Caribbean, Dr. McGuire comes across a ceremony where people are lighting paper lanterns and setting them off into the sky. He looks at the picture of his wife that he brought with him, kisses it gently, and attaches it to one of the lanterns, which he lets go of and watches until it disappears into the night. Feeling renewed, rejuvenated, and like he has a new lease on life, he heads home to Boston, where he's delighted to find a wedding invitation from Will and Skylar in his mailbox. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Thank you. I'm turning that's the sap nice, up again a bit. Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> nice, that, though. I could, I, could, I, was, I could see that in my head, the whole thing. I could well, see Bob Williams doing that with the... Oh, very nice, yeah. <laughs> Brings a little tear to my eye, if I may say so myself. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's very nice. All right, well, what, uh, let's see what you've got then. I want to see how you wrap this up. Bring yeah, I'll, home. I'll, bring, I'll bring it down. Oh, boy. <laughs> God, I will bring it down, actually. Just, yeah, okay. you got to be you, Phil. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Chucky contacted Skylar after tracking her down just to see. He wanted to know how Will was, and he asks her. She tells him Will never showed up and was surprised to hear from Chucky. Chucky talks a bit more to her, see how she is. She's fine. She's studies went well. And life's, life's pretty good for her. But Chucky hands up and he's despondent. So he spends days and weeks trying to find Will, but to no avail. He files a missing person report, but nothing ever comes of it. Sean returns home years later, meets up with Professor Lambo, who has been working with the government for a while, as well as the university. Unbeknownst to Sean, Lambo has been selling secrets to enemies of the United States. It just so happens that as Sean is visiting Lambo, the newly activated agent Bourne has been tasked to assassinate Lambo and any potential witnesses. Bourne doesn't even blink as he puts the gun to Sean's head. Oh, Brutal. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, Phil, you're killing me. I know. So I just got the bone thing in my head. I couldn't get it away. No, I get it. You know, I, I didn't even think of that, to be honest with you. And I'm, uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't because it might have been yeah. too too hard not to go with yeah. it because I mean, I, it makes sense and I like it. But because yeah. uh, I was just thinking it'd still be the bone before the bone identity where he is just the, you know, the brainwashed right. soldier just doing a mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, li- I like it. I like it. It just uh, a little. It hurts yeah. a little bit. It hurts a little right here. Yeah. I know. It hit me right in it as well. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to bring things back up then. How's yeah, that? I'm glad you're, you're, you're ending this one. All right. In the year since he went to California, Will finds a career in the movie industry of all places, using his mathematical skills to revolutionize box office prognostication. He invents a system that predicts a movie's box office grosses with pinpoint accuracy and becomes a major player in the financial side of Hollywood. He doesn't really want to work in the movie industry, but he figures he can kind of make his fortune and then cash out and focus solely on pure mathematical studies. He makes an extremely comfortable living and supports Skylar while she finishes school at Stanford. When the wedding comes around, Will has an emotional reunion with Dr. McGuire, as well as Professor Lambeau and his friends Chucky, Billy, and Morgan. Will offers the three of them jobs at his company, which they accept. He doesn't just want them to be hangers-on, however. It's not like an entourage situation, you know, with, with Vinny, yeah. Chase, and all that. Yeah. But he gives them jobs suited to their skill sets, having them trained in marketing, sales, and human resources. Will offers Dr. McGuire a job, too, but he wants to return to Boston and go back into therapy full-time, hoping to help other young people with emotional issues. During the wedding, Dr. McGuire meets Skylar's mother and sparks fly. And for the first time since the death of his wife, Dr. McGuire feels the first stirrings of love. 
And oh. that's the end. Yeah, yours is a, a, a much better ending for, <laughs> no, it's, for Good it's, Hunting. It's more, it's, more, uh, it's more of an upbeat ending than yours is, but yours is yeah, a better could, ending for yeah. this show, I think. I, I think if fans, though, of Good Will Hunting went to see my ending for the sequel of the film, they'd be going, it's not really what I was expecting. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is bad Will hunting. Yeah. Bad yeah. Will yeah. hunting. The bad Will hunting, yeah. How'd you like them apples? <laughs> right. right. He's like, that's his catchphrase. <laughs> he yeah. like, puts his gun to your head. He's like, how do you like them apples? Bam! And then he kills yeah. you. It's like his I'll be back, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Applesauce. Boom. <laughs> oh, man. Well, oh. there you go. All right. How'd so... you like your apples? Mashed. <laughs> Or juiced. Oh, that's yeah. terrible. Terrible. Yeah. Pureed. Okay, we can stop. We can go on all day yeah. with this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take a bite out of crime. <laughs> Sorry. I've got my eyes peeled. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know we're back now because we got bad impressions <laughs> and bad puns. Oh, Christ. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so how about, do you have any trivia from uh, Goodwill Hunting? Do you have any? <laughs> yes, any luckily. Let's, uh, Goodwill let's trivia. move on. Yeah. Uh, Cassie, Not Goodwill uh, trivia, like trivia about the Goodwill, like the organization yeah. that helps people. Trivia about the movie Goodwill Hunting. Okay. Uh, Casey Affleck ad-libbed most of his lines, which got on the nerves of Matt Damon and Bane Affleck because they'd written this stuff. But they admit, later admitted that Casey's improvised lines were much funnier and better than what was originally written, which I quite like that. I do too. Uh, the, first day, the very first day of shooting, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck started crying out of happiness because it was a scene between Robin Williams and Stellan Skarsgård, and they couldn't believe it was their words coming out of their mouths. Robin Williams read the script. Uh, he was with Francis Ford Coppola, and he really liked it. And his one question for Coppola was, who are these guys? Right. Gus Van Sant, the director, at one point asked Damon and Affleck to rewrite the script so that Chucky was killed in a construction accident. Uh, Damon and Affleck protested, but reluctantly wrote the scene in. And Van Sant read it and agreed with him. He said, no, it's dreadful. Let's keep it out. Oh, interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad for that. I don't think yes. that would have added anything to the film. I mean, you got to imagine that's pretty, you know, you're, you're these two guys who are kind of nobodies, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you write this film script and somehow, somehow you manage to convince people to not only buy the script, but then you get Robin Williams in one of the lead roles and you still get to act in it, which yeah. doesn't happen all that often, you know? Yeah. And it's a, uh, well, that's a uh, Good Will Hunting. All right. Very nice. Okay. So those are our endings for Good Will Hunting and Event Horizon. If you have thoughts on our endings or would like to share your own, you can get in touch with us. We'll tell you how to do that later. In the meantime, let's move on to our. Mighty Morphin mini feature. Phil, what are we doing tonight? Okay, this week our Mighty Morphin mini feature is Good Trailer, Bad Movie. And as the name suggests, we are going to be looking at films which had a good or great trailer, uh, which got us very excited for the film in question, but then when the film hit, we all sort of went, what? Yeah, I mean, pretty self-explanatory title, but there are definitely, I mean, just so many movies where this occurred, but I think these are some of the maybe particular gems where it was sort of yeah. some of the more egregious examples. So, uh, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and kick off? Give us your, give us your first one. Okay. My first one is for the battle, uh, battle Los Angeles. It's the one with starred Aaron Eckhart and was aliens, another alien invasion one. Right. And we're following a team of soldiers fighting in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, the trailer was really good. It was sort of like footage of the invasion and from, uh, like news cameras on the highways and LA and things and had a, the haunting music. This, I think the tracks, the sun's gone down, by Johan Johannesson, uh, and it's it's a haunting trailer. You just you're going, wow, what's this? You don't see anything. You're not sure what's going on, but it looks like things are really really bad, and you want to know what more. And because it's got the lovely soundtrack and the things, it looked a bit more looked a bit deeper and a bit more to it than lots of a uh, the similar kind of alien invasion films. But then the film came, and it was just a it was a bog standard alien invasion film with not very interesting characters. Uh, you weren't really sure what they were doing or why they were doing it, and it just it just fumbled the ball big time. Didn't have anything that the trailer promised. Can I and let I you know so... on, a, on a secret there, Phil? Yeah, I love that movie. Oh, do you? <laughs> oh no, I was so disappointed. <laughs> I do. Uh, maybe I I don't know. Maybe my expectations weren't that high for it, but I yeah. really enjoyed it. I thought it was a just a great kind of actiony, you know. Saving Private Ryan esque, except with aliens, yeah, yeah, not at that level, part, obviously. But yeah. I do really like that movie, actually. So, but I can understand. I know it was a big. I know it yeah. tanked hard, and I know people were not fans of it. I yeah. happen to be the one person who was like, I don't know, people didn't like this movie. I thought it was well, great. I, as, I'm, as always, I'm glad someone enjoyed the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah but even uh, if I'm the only one, I just it's, it's from the the original get go. It's probably one of those things where you see these things and your imagination takes off, right? And then it can't, can't much imagine it. It's like waiting for the second Matrix film. When you, you've had all these theories and ideas and then that hits and you're just going, what the heck is going on? Right, right, exactly. It just didn't seem to have enough 
bite into it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can understand where you're coming from, yeah. for sure. I just could be an interesting series of films, though, with Liam showing the same of invasion from different viewpoints, right? Right, different cities, but nothing we'll wasn't, get that. wasn't meant to be, I guess. No, no. So, what's uh, what's your first one? All right, well, my first one is kind of an unconventional pick, I think, but it is uh, The Medicine Man from 1992, starring Sean Connery and Lorraine Bracco, and I'm guessing oh, yeah, yeah. a lot of people might not even remember this film but here here's the thing so sean connery so from 1986 to 1991 sean connery made the highlander the untouchables the presidio indiana jones and the last crusade and then the hunt for Red october five amazing movies all films that i love and yeah. it was sort of like his post bond renaissance I and mean, he was at the top of the box office and he was making these great action adventure movies and you know he was sean connery yeah. and so then the trailer came out for the medicine man in 1992 and it looked like this really cool like you know he's this doctor out in the you know out in the jungle and he's trying to it's cure the rainforest cancer. one isn't it yeah, yeah the rainforest yeah, and, the one, yeah. and you know is the, the big bulldozers are coming and he's trying to save people and it looked like this just really fun kind of exciting adventure um and then i I went to see it uh and it's just a dreadful movie i mean his character you know it's it's him and lorraine bracco she comes out as an assistant but he doesn't want anything to do with her because she's a woman so he's a complete misogynist yeah Uh, and then they end up falling in love which is you know kind of so ham-fisted but then also I really hated Lorraine Bracco's performance in the film, so much to the point I've never watched another Lorraine Bracco movie ever again <laughs> because I, I really can't stand her in that movie so much. So the whole movie was just terrible. And it's not like it was the greatest trailer in the world, but it was sort of like, you know, like when there's an actor who just can do no wrong and every movie they yeah, put out is Yeah, especially when they've awesome. been in a load of good films. Yeah. yeah, so it was like, oh, great. You know, it's like here, it's like the next Christopher Nolan film is coming out. You know, you're like, I'm excited about this because everything I've seen him in for the past five years has been great. And mm. this movie looks really cool and it was a, f- a good trailer. It looked like a, you know, really thrilling, and it was just a bunch of talking in trees, and um, it's <laughs> just not. a bunch of talking. There's your, yeah. there's your poster tagline. Exactly. So, uh, so that's that's my first pick. So, bad, good, good trailer, bad movie. Yeah, I remember seeing the trailer, like you thinking, "Wow, this looks good." And then I know I've seen the film, but I re- remember very little from it. So I just remember um, vehemently disliking it. So yeah, I think I remember turning out some one of the plants there could either kill you or cure you. Or yeah, something, something like that. I don't know. Oh, okay. Anyway. All right, so what's your what's your second film? Well, my second one is one which I've mentioned before, though, but Prometheus, Ridley Scott's Prometheus. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. Uh, so, yeah, Prometheus, the trailer is, well, you know, Ridley Scott was making a new alien film, and we're going, oh, well, what's it going to be? What's it going to be like? And then the trailer came, and it's all like that, wah, sound, not quite the Christopher Nolan. <laughs> right, wah. right. It's like a, a variation like, yeah. kind of thing. I was doing something with my hand then as well, which is going to look really good when you listen to this. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, you saw that and you saw little snippets and it was like a countdown and you could hear Numi Rapace or just screaming and you weren't sure what was going on, but it looked scary and dark and it just looked exciting again. It just seemed to be back to Alien, the back scary Alien. And then you go and see the film and it's a bunch of idiot scientists <laughs> with touching a space snake in the map, make it get lost. And, yep. oh. and a story that doesn't really make that much sense. And Yeah, and you've got old Guy Pearce. Yeah, yeah, for no reason. Oh, God, and, you know, run out the way of the ship that's falling at you. Oh, right, oh. right. So many problems. Hel- oh, yeah. So many just problems. So much so excited. And it just, seeing the film, it just came crashing and burning like the Prometheus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, it. I think yeah, Ridley Scott. I, I mean, yeah. I definitely agree with you. I think that it didn't would have made my list only because I was less excited about it because of my dislike for Ridley Scott. Yeah. I generally don't oh, have yeah. faith in him to make good movies. So even though, well, I that's was, it as well. Yeah, that's the other burn because he made all those lousy ones before Prometheus, right? right. Um, but I was I got my hopes up again. And then it yeah, went, oh. see, I, I was just way too weary of that. I was like, you know, I know it's a new Aliens film sort of but it's Ridley Scott which means it's going to be overly serious and you know it'll look gorgeous it'll have a bad story it'll be overly serious it'll have no humor in it and that's exactly yeah. what I got so uh, but I, I do agree I mean certainly it was a good enough trailer to make you excited about seeing it so yeah I'm just uh, I get worried though because I'm getting a bit excited for Alien Covenant right and I told, I told myself not to right 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 uh, well fingers well, crossed we'll just have to wait and see fingers crossed yeah so what's what's uh, what's your last good trailer bad movie all right well here's one i've been angry about for 16 years now and it's Oof, gonna okay. surprise you because it's not like it's that important of a movie but it is i get the feeling this has been bubbling under the way oh man um, i will yeah. rant about this every time i get a chance okay it's Rant 2000s away. reindeer games starring one ben affleck mm. and you know this was in the years before the affleck backlash backlash really started um, no, I've seen I've seen the film in question though, so I know exactly where you're coming from. Okay, so so here's the thing though: it's not so much that it was a great trailer; 
it was a good trailer. It looked like a, a solid action thriller. But in the trailer, there's a scene where Ben Affleck runs and jumps across this ravine and barely catches on the other side. And it's like, is he going to fall? Is he going to you know, not fall? What's going to happen? I don't know. See the film and find out. And then guess what? <laughs> it's not in the freaking film. <laughs> now, that's bad enough. But then this is where and this is where the anger comes from, because, you know, that's one of those things where I'm like, well, that was the most exciting scene in the trailer and you left it out of the movie, which I'm going to yeah. say was a miscalculation. But then it gets worse. A year or two later, they put out a director's cut on DVD. Okay. Reindeer Games, the director's cut. So I said, sweet, because I want to see the scene where he jumps across the ravine and figure out how it, how it falls into the movie. Right. So I yeah, put in yeah. the director's cut and I watch Reindeer Games for the second time. It's still not in the movie. Oh, my God. It's the director's cut. Games and they twice. still couldn't put the freaking scene in where he jumps across the ravine. It's not in the director's cut either. And that's when I really lost my mind because I was like – Seriously, on the director's cut, as an extra feature, is the trailer, which shows him jumping over the ravine. It's not as a deleted scene. It's not in the movie, but it's still in the trailer. And I'm like, are you people kidding me right now? Oh, my God. God, so yeah, so that's... So it's like twice. So, so much, they tease me. Yeah, it's a good, with good trailer, but then this scene that wasn't even in the final film. I've still never seen it. Still never uh -huh. seen that scene except for in the trailer. And it makes me insane because you had the director's cut, which the whole point of is to yeah. go back and you know add things back in. <laughs> and it's a scene that millions of people saw because it was in the trailer and they couldn't even... Oh, man. How it odd. gets me mad every that. time. Well, the, the closest example I can think to that in more recent years is uh, the Fantastic Four film, which had a big... One of the big things of the, in the trailer was the thing being dropped out of a plane. Right, 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 right. Yep. And then that scene and the big battle, which he promised, isn't actually in the <laughs> right in the film. Which, which is absolutely an egregious oversight. But now yeah. imagine they put out a director's cut of that movie, and that scene still isn't in it. You're going to be like, come on. Yeah, because you'd say, oh, this is going to be in it. But I, I remember watching the Reindeer Game, and uh, oh, it was a bad movie. That. Yeah, it's it's not a great film, but yeah. I just you but know you, they got you to watch it twice. Twice. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. kills me. So, but Ben, if you are listening, give us a call or we'll get in touch on email and let us know what happened with that scene and how it would fit in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I want to know. Yeah. I'm the only person who seems to care that much about this, but I want to know. Okay, so that is our good trailer, bad movie feature, something I'm sure we'll be returning to. Clearly, I have some anger issues that need to be worked out. Yeah, damn you, Reindeer Games. I'm telling you, man, that movie. Oh, do not mention yes. that movie to me. But let us know uh, in the usual way. In the usual ways, get in touch and tell us what your favorite good trailer, bad movie is. Yes. What, what trailer lifted your spirits and what film crushed it? Yes. All right. So moving on then, let's get into our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, where we revisit a particular year of Hollywood history and share our top 10 favorite films. And this year we are doing 1941. So Phil, take us back in time to 1941 and tell us what the world was like back then. Yes, I say, old chap. 1941, Prime Minister Winston Churchill <laughs> and President Franklin D. Roosevelt. So the war had been going on for a little bit, and we had the events of Pearl Harbor, which brought the Yanks into the war. Uh, is it okay for me to say Yanks? Is that, is that allowed? I mean, I don't take offense at it, and so, you know, I don't, I don't see why not. Just checking with the colony. Yeah, I, I'm going okay. to go ahead and say it's, it's acceptable, it's allowed. If any of our listeners have a problem with it, they can let us know. But You're, you're American, so I will accept that, that ruling. I don't mind. As long as you're not okay. saying it like, you know, you bleeding yanks. No, as in, as in, you know, as in Americans. Yeah, I got you. I call you Brits yeah. all the time, so I don't, there you go. I don't see a big difference. Well, I take offense at that. Oh, do you? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, so uh, some little facts from 1941 just set the scene. We've already had Pearl Harbor. Uh, all persons born in Puerto Rico from the 13th of January 1941 were declared U.S. citizens by birth. Uh, the United Service Organization, the USO, was created to entertain U.S. troops and gave Captain America something to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, fir the first British jet aircraft, the Gloucester E-2839, was flown. Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak begins, and I'm not up on baseball that much, but I imagine that's uh, quite a good thing. It sounds like a lot. It does, yeah. 56 games, and they do go on a long time. Yeah. Uh, the, the British Army Special Air Service, the SAS, is formed, making our childhood games of soldiers and things a lot bit more exciting. NBC TV begins commercial operation in the US. Uh, the last day of carving on Mount Rushmore was on the 31st of October 1941, and the first episode where Tom and Jerry were named was aired more than a year after they first appeared. Oh, that's cool. Yes, and there were some famous uh, movie people born that year. Hayao Miyazaki, the Studio Ghibli dude. Uh, Faye Dunaway, Scott Glenn, Nick Nolte, Wolfgang Peterson, 
Bo Bridges, Anne Margaret, Nora Ephron, Stacey Keach, Neil Adams, Peter Cullen, Martha Stewart and Peter Coyote. And we also lost James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. All right. Well, that's 1941 in a nutshell then. Yes. Okay, so that was, that's what was going on in 1941. So let's get into our top 10 films of that year. Mike, what's your number 10? Well, this isn't going to be the most surprising pick in the world, but it is Dumbo. Uh, as we know, if there's a Disney movie out in, in that year, there's a good chance it might end up on my list. Yeah, I had, had a feeling it would. Yeah. It only squeaked in at number 10. Dumbo isn't one of my favorite Disney films. The whole pink elephant scene is really trippy and really out there. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's an endearing character. It is one of those movies that everyone has seen. It's, it's kind of, I think, sort of part of the culture. You know, everyone knows yeah. who Dumbo is. Everyone can relate, you know. Certain things that get absorbed into the the public consciousness. Exactly, family. exactly. And Dumbo, Bambi, all those classic, you know, Disney films are, are among them. So, so like I said, it squeaks in. It's not my favorite Disney film, but it's just good enough to make it in the top 10. Yeah, very good. Uh, my number 10 is The Wolfman, yeah, Universal's uh, werewolf movie featuring, starring Claude Rains, Evelyn Ankers, Ralph Bellamy, and Bella Lugosi. It's, while I do love a werewolf movie, I love the Universal monster movies. It's not my favorite out of all of them, but uh, I do like it, apart from the... The makeup for the Wolfman, I always find that. Even as a kid, I thought it was a bit naff. Right. But I know I know it was limited back then, but I do like it. I like the uh, the atmosphere that's built, and uh, it's, it's it's nice seeing this universal take on it. And it's it's a classic, and uh, rightly so. That's my number 10. Alrighty. Well, my number nine is Buck Privates, starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. And as I've mentioned in a previous episode, I'm a big Abbott and Costello fan. This is one of their films that I remember watching a few times as a kid. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I know that you know it might have been higher on my list or it might not have made my list, but I certainly have an affinity for them, um, and it was a movie that I, I did enjoy in my younger years. So it makes it in at number nine. Okay, good, good pick. Uh, my number nine is 49th Parallel, starred Leslie Howard and Lance Olivier. It was a British war film written and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who made wonderful films. This one, as I say, it was a war film, and the British Ministry of Information got in touch with Michael Powell. They wanted a propaganda film, basically, because there was uh, German ones popping up and down. So they made this one, and it is very obvious it's a propaganda film, but it's still very good. It's beautifully shot. Uh, it's worth. It's not the best war movie, but it's... Uh, it's got some great scenes, some good acting, and it's worth checking out if you haven't already seen it. I have not seen it, so I will have to check that out. Yeah, because Powell and Pressburg is always worth Yeah, you watching. can't go wrong with them, for yeah. sure. Yeah, All right, well, my number eight is Meet John Doe, starring Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. And, uh, and it is about a man who sort of accidentally starts a political movement. It's kind of a hard movie to explain. He's sort of a nobody who goes into being a somebody. Um, yeah. It's kind of an esoteric film in that respect, but it's much more concrete when you watch it uh but it's a film that I, I watched i think in college and i i really liked it you know uh barbara stanwick and and gary cooper are both terrific and it's kind of got some interesting ideas it's not the greatest film in the world but it is certainly one of those classic hollywood films that I, that i enjoy so uh so again it makes it in at number eight good stuff okay my number eight is never give a suck at an even break another universal film this one's a comedy starring wc fields not all comedy films from that era age well this one, on the whole, has. It's W.C. Fields often very funny, very clever lines. Uh, if you just want to have a laugh, you want to see how humor's changed over the years as well, it's a good one to watch compared to some of what, today's comedies. All right. Well, my number seven has already appeared on your list, so... Uh, it didn't take too long for that to happen, but it is <laughs> The Wolfman. Uh, much like you, I, I do enjoy it. It's not my favorite of the Universal Monsters films. I love Claude Rains. Obviously, he was in Casablanca, so I have a special yeah, yeah, place yeah, in my heart. Yeah, but he's great in everything. So, um, uh, but he, you know, it's it's just a it, like you said, it's a classic horror film. You know, from back in the days when horror was a different kind of movie than it is now. Uh, but I do enjoy it, and it, it certainly is a classic of the genre. Very good. Okay, my number seven is Shadow of the Thin Man. I've mentioned the Thin Man films before. I knew this would be. I knew this would be on your list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you have yeah, this, is the, for them. this is the fourth of the six Thin Man films, and they star. This one was directed by W. S. Van Dyke. It stars William Powell and Men Alloy, has Nick and Nora Charles once more. Also features Donna Reed and Barry Nelson. This is the one where they're gone to the racetrack, and there's a jockey gets killed, and it's it's all an excuse. These films where somebody dies, and they're investigating the you know, detectives, but it's all about the repartee between uh, William Powell and Mernal Lawyer and the dialogue. It's always a joy to watch. So it's just one of those films that brings a smile to you and it's uh, good fun. And it's just, it's just, just wonderful listening to them talking to each other. 
Sure. Yeah. Oh, like I mentioned last time you brought them up, I've seen the first film, but I haven't seen any of the rest yeah, of them. Yeah. So uh, I do enjoy it. And I do want to get back to watching the rest of them. I just haven't had a chance yet. So Yeah, always a good one, like Sunday afternoon kind of film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, my number six is Sullivan's Travels, directed by the great Preston Sturgis and also starring uh, Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And it, this is a yeah. film I really, I really enjoy quite a bit. Um, Joel McRae was never the biggest star of his day, but I, I think he's quite good, especially in this movie. And it's basically a about a, a filmmaker, a, a director, a famous movie director who uh, decides he needs to get a taste of realism. So he goes on the road as a hobo to see what it's like on the other side. And uh, and then things happen from there. But it's, you know, it's a fun film. It's a it's a comedy of sorts with some drama mixed in. And, uh, you know, the, the performances are great. Preston Sturgis is a terrific director. And uh, it's just a movie that I, I really enjoy. Excellent. Yeah. I couldn't recall ever seeing that one. So it didn't make my list. Oh, uh, it's worth it's worth watching if you yeah, have a chance. It's, it's really it's one I've, I've, I know I've wanted to see it, but I've, I've never got around to it. So, okay, so where are we up to? My number six. Yes. Is it? Yes. My number six is uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. It's a story where a boxer is mistakenly taken to heaven before his time and he has a second chance to come back to earth. It might sound familiar because Warren Beatty remade it in 1978 as Devil, uh, Heaven Can Wait. And there's been other films, similar ones. Uh, I think there's one with Chris Rock as well. Same kind of thing where a sportsman or musician dies before the time and they go back and then they come back to earth and you've got to try out new lives and see what they learn life lessons. But it stars Robert Montgomery, Haviland Keyes, Claude Rains, Rita Johnson. Uh, it's, it's a good story, good acting, and it's always good seeing these things, you know, people living different lives and what have you. Absolutely, a great choice. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. All right, well, my number five is The Maltese Falcon, and uh, starring Humphrey Bogart, directed by John Huston, and kind of the film that made Humphrey Bogart a star. And as we yes. all know by now, I'm a huge Humphrey Bogart fan. And actually, the only reason this movie isn't higher on my list is because... It's re actually it's it's not my favorite Humphrey Bogart movie. I know okay. it's a classic and I do enjoy it, but in the Humphrey Bogart filmography, it, it doesn't actually rank as one of my favorites of his. It is a movie I enjoy, um, but it, it it's I don't know there's something about it that never quite I don't find it quite as as captivating as some of his other films. So uh, it does definitely make my list. It's in my top five, but it comes in at number five. Very good. Okay. Okay. My number five is The Devil and Daniel Webster. It's another take on the Faust legend. This one's set in uh, New England. It stars Edward Arnold, Walter Houston, James Craig, and a few other people. Usual kind of thing. There's a guy who's a bit got no money, got bad luck, and he, so he makes a deal with the devil, or Mr. Scratch, who's played by Walter Houston in this one. And obviously things things go well with, with the devil. Things are never quite as good as they seem, and it all goes to hell. But it's, uh, it's uh, I always like, I like seeing the devil on, on screen, especially if the actor's good and they're doing a good take with it or something a bit different. And uh, this this one works well. It's always good seeing how a person's wishes and what they want, it can be twisted until they become a lesser person. Right. So what have you got next? Okay. Well, my number four is Suspicion, starring Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine, directed by the great Alfred Hitchcock. And it's a fantastic movie. It's sort of a, a suspense thriller but with a lot of comedy in it. It's one of Hitchcock's lighter films. And honestly, the only reason it didn't come in at number one or number two is because the ending is so anticlimactic. Um, and you know, I don't want to spoil it for people, but basically it just sort of like – kind of ends and you sort of go well but if he's lying about everything else then why are you all of a sudden taking him for his word for it here and now everything's okay it's just a really strange ending to me and i, I guess it it works in the context of the film uh, if you sort of put your rose-colored glasses on but uh it, it, i love the movie i love 95 percent of it and then the ending falls flat for me so honestly it would have been probably my top film of the year if it wasn't for that that ending because it is really a fun fun film nigel bruce from the sherlock holmes movies is terrific in the supporting role yeah uh, joan fontaine won the oscar for her role she's the only person from a hitchcock film ever to win an oscar and cary grant of course is cary grant so it's a, it's a great film but just if you watch it be prepared to be a slightly disappointed by the ending well it's uh my number four is suspicion and oh, there you go the, the exact same reasons it's it's not higher because of the ending it's it's weird isn't it like you're yeah. like you're like all this stuff where he lies and then at the end he's like well this is the truth and she's like oh okay if only i had known yeah. and you're like 
But it's like it's almost like they had a test screening of it, yeah. like they do nowadays. And then the people went, "Oh, it's a bit of a downer ending when he killed the robot right, right. with all the right. money." Yeah, it's it's so out of character. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, maybe that's why I did it. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's yeah. kind of the twist. But like, yeah. it's just such a. I I don't even mind the, the the events of the ending. I just wish there had maybe then been more follow up where we sort of see him go through yeah. with what he says he's going to do, so you know he's telling the truth. You know, yeah. there's just nothing to make me believe him when he's been lying for the whole movie. Well, it's good to know we're on the same page, though, at least for, for yes, one of our films, yes. as usual. We come in in that number three or four spot. We seem to match up yeah. a lot. That's, yeah, that's a money spot. All right. Well, my number three is Citizen Kane, often called the greatest movie ever made. It's not, but it is a good film. Uh, <laughs> written and directed by Orson Welles and, of course, starring Orson Welles. I, I will say I have a habit I've had since I was young. I will continue to do until my dying days and hopefully even on my dying day. <laughs> whenever, for any reason, I pretend to fake dying, if it's just to make my kids laugh or whatever the reason is, any films I've ever shot, you know, goofy handheld films, I always have to say – Rosebud. Yeah. Because that's just, you know, it's such an iconic moment in film history. So it's one, that's another one which has seeped into people's consciousness, even if they've never seen the film. Exactly. Everyone knows Rosebud, you know, as something yeah. to do with, with dying like that, you know. So, yeah. uh, but it is a great movie and I do like it. Um, but I don't think it's the greatest film ever made, but it is certainly a movie that I respect and enjoy very much. So it's my number three. Okay, very good. Uh, my number three is High Sierra. Excellent choice. Stars Idol Pino, Humphrey Bogart, directed by Raoul Walsh. Uh, filmed in California, Sierra Nevada, I think, wasn't it? I believe so. It's a heist movie, it's a noir movie, and it stars Humphrey Bogart being tough. There's chases, there's voluptuous women, there's action, but there's drama, and it's Humphrey Bogart being cool, even when things are going the worst they can go. Yep. It's it's a great film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific choice. Thank you. All right, well, my number two has also appeared on your list already, and it is Here Comes Mr. Jordan. And uh, here's the thing about that. I'm a huge, huge fan of Heaven Can Wait. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a movie I, I watched as a kid. I loved it. I, I you know, I've loved it for a really long time. I'll talk yeah, about that here. in a future episode. But I had never seen Here Comes Mr. Jordan until recently. And um, when I when I got the chance to watch it, I of course jumped at the chance because I always want to see the original that inspired something else that I love. And you know, yeah. it's just as good of a movie. I mean, it's a different movie. You know, it has yeah. obviously different subplots and things like that. But Robert Montgomery is great in the lead role. Claude Rains is fantastic as Mr. Jordan. And you know, it's it's a it's not the kind of comedy what we think of comedy today it's not laugh out loud funny but it's a very light-hearted film uh and i just i really enjoyed it it's nice to see that that's you know two movies that are basically the same story that i i love very very much yeah i think though you mentioned it there though, i think it's a film which can be remade probably again and again because you can have at the basic premise where a guy's taken too soon and then he's trying different lives but he could have a different he can have a different life to begin with and then the stories he has can be all different all the time so it's only going to be the central core which is going to be the same right. but you can go off Many different ways. Yep, yep, exactly. And even the Chris Rock version, which I, I grumbled yeah. at earlier, it's not a bad film, actually. It's just when you compare yeah. it to Heaven Can Wait and, and Here Comes Mr. Jordan, it pales in comparison. But it's a perfectly enjoyable movie for what it is. So Yeah. All right, so what's your number two then, Phil? My number two, you've already mentioned it, is The Maltese Falcon. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Yes, based on the novel by Dashiell Hammett. Humphrey Bogart is Sam Spade, Mary Astor. It's the classic, classic noir setup. You know, the detective, there's a femme fatale comes in and he's got to find the MacGuffin which in this case is the Maltese Falcon. And you've also got Peter Laurie and Sidney Greenstreet who were sinister and comical at the same time. I don't know how they do that. It's You're scared of them, but also you want to laugh at them. Right. Yeah. And also Peter Laurie, he's always so sweaty. How did, how did he do that? <laughs> I love Peter Laurie. He's always Laurie. so nervous. Yeah. He's great. But uh, it's, yeah, uh, I love it. It's this, the plot. When people say nowadays the plot doesn't make much sense, they really need to sit down and watch the Maltese Falcon because it's all over the place. And, you know, in some places you're going, well, who's that? Well, it, okay, it doesn't matter though, because it just all just it just adds up to like uh, noir brilliance. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No arguments here. It is definitely a great film. Okay, so bring it on home with your number one. Well, my number one has already appeared on your list. It is. Any guesses? High Sierra. Yeah, it's High Sierra. Yeah, I thought it might have been it's got to be a Humphrey Bogart film. You know, yeah, he's yeah, one of my yeah. favorites. And and I know that a lot of people would not consider it a better film than The Maltese Falcon, which I place on my list. But to me, High Sierra is a much more Kind of more of a crowd pleaser, you know. It's a little more action. It's it's you know more yeah. typical, you know, gangsters oh, and yeah, malls. definitely. It's more like an action film, isn't it? Yeah, and you yeah. know, and I, I guess I'm just not that sophisticated, you know. I, I love the Maltese <laughs> Falcon, but High Sierra to me is more of what I love about Humphrey Bogart when he's 
kind of a bad guy, but with the heart of gold, sort of. You know, he's not. He's he's kind of an anti-hero, I guess, is what you would was what you would call it. Yeah, even though he's yeah. a criminal, but you know, he it, it's just it really captures what I what I love about him. And, and he, obviously, Sam Spade is an iconic role, but for me, High Sierra is just a much more adventurous, exciting film. And you know, on a, on a pure entertainment level, High Sierra is the one I'm going to put in the, the Blu-ray player first. So no, I could, I could see that. I always like this one for Bogart. He always almost every character he plays. There's always this, he doesn't have to say anything, but you can see the characters live the life. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I mean, you're not even thinking that's Humphrey Bogart. You just, you go, well, no, yeah, he's, he's been through, he's been through some bad times, that guy, but yeah. he's doing the best he can. I think that there has never been another actor like Humphrey Bogart. And uh, I think I've mentioned before how I, for a long time when I grew up, I watched classic Hollywood movies and I wasn't really yeah. a fan of his until I took some film classes in college and we watched like three or four Bogart films in a film noir class that I took. And I instantly just fell in love with him once I watched the right movies. And, um, and, and I've gone through since and watched more of his movies. And I just, I find him to be, just a really incredible actor and and you know he's one of those guys who managed to somehow sort of play the same role all the time and yet not yeah yeah you know and and every time you watch him his performance is so amazing and so intense and like you said he's he's lived a lifetime and just like his eyes and his face you know it tells you everything you need to know and i I try to think i'm like well who's the contemporary version of humphrey bogart and there isn't one you know there's a lot of people you can compare to like a a cary grant or a jimmy stewart maybe yeah but there's nobody like Humphrey Bogart. you know there never has been and that to me is i think part of what i love about him so much is he was so unique and he was such a you know such an indelible character um that you know it's also interesting because high sierra it's we've been saying it's like an action film but even in that he he doesn't really do much he doesn't (laughs) move much right that's true but it's just it all still works though doesn't it it's just the way he stands and he's like a steel coil you know like waiting yeah exactly you're waiting for him to do and it's it's like he does the little short slap thing in a few of the things he's in yeah just suddenly the hand comes from nowhere and just slaps yeah yeah he never needed to overact you know he never needed to over emote or use his body more than he needed to and that was the thing it was he just he's he's so amazing you you knew knew he could beat any guy up even though he was like the smallest guy yep yep exactly exactly you know it's he's fascinating to me fascinating so yeah so if you've never seen any humphrey bogart films go out and yeah, you know, I think see, a lot of people yeah. haven't because a lot of people, you know, yeah. younger viewers may not have gone back to the classic Hollywood films. But I think if you're going to, you know, delve into that world, I think Humphrey Bogart really is somebody who you need to, uh, you know, revisit his catalog because he's he's really yeah. something else. Yeah. So if you came for Event Horizon, leave with Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Listen, we take things all over the map. That's just how we do it. All right, Phil. Well, I think I may have an inkling of a clue as to what your number one is, but you always surprise me. So go ahead and, and, and reveal to us what your number one pick is. No, it's not going to be much of a surprise this time. It's uh, it's Citizen Kane. Uh, I had a feeling. So the sort of part of me was a bit act that this was my number one. <laughs> right. You're kind of like, really? I'm going, for God, no. <laughs> Do I have to put Citizen Kane at number one? It's so cliched. Uh, <laughs> but it's, I've seen it lots of times. I've seen it at the cinema a few times, especially the one in uh, Liverpool. I've mentioned it before with the... Uh, the screen comes out to the, the theatre floor and there's a guy playing the organ beforehand. So you feel like you're back in like the 40s watching things. But it's, it is, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking, especially considering he was so young at the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. To find out how, how old he was. It's time. like 27, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that. So, yeah, let's say 27. Whatever it was. He, it was, it was he stupid, was stupid young. young. Stupid <laughs> young. And it's just, I just, I like it, way it the way it takes us through this guy's life and because... You don't like the guy. He's a nasty guy. He doesn't do anything for, apart from making a stinking lot of money off the backs of other people. But you, you're just dragged along with it. You want to see it, even when his his marriage is falling apart, even though he's messing around. You still you want to know what happens next, and you want to find out what how this little kid playing in the snow became this bitter, twisted old man who died whispering uh, rosebud. It's just phenomenal to do the way the scenes cut, the way they had the camera panning in and they're moving away the neon signs on top of the roof to get close-ups on to the window and things like this. It was ahead of its time in so many different ways. And the set dressing when you're seeing Charles Foster Kane's property being catalogued and taken away, it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's back then when you could do these big sets with like hundreds of people, hundreds of extras. Yeah. And you've got, you got Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton, and the gang all there. Agnes Moorhead's in it as well. Yep. From She was Bewitched. Bewitched. Yep. Yeah, but it's just uh, it's a stunning film. It is, absolutely. And the magic of the internet tells me that, by the way, he was 26 when the film was released, which means he had to be 25 when he was making it. So, Jeez like we said, Christ. stupid young. Yeah, 43, you know. 
<laughs> Crazy. An excellent pick for number one, Phil. I, I definitely, you know, can't argue with that. Like I said, it was my number three. It certainly is, you know, it certainly is up there. It is, it is a great film, yeah. for sure. What's well, the thing, though, as well, thinking about it, though, he's tw- 25, 26 when he made the film. And we're, I'm thinking, God, he made that then, you know. But then it did, he could never top it, could he? And his, his whole career after that was, right, right, it was a gradual definitely decline. Downhill. Yeah. Yeah, part as while his weight grew, <laughs> yeah, exactly. his, uh, his career, right, yeah, right. But that's that's our top ten films of nineteen forty one. Indeed, it is. All right, so I think it's time to start wrapping things up. Then, Phil, why don't you tell people what we're going to be discussing on next week's show? Uh, next week we'll be doing our top ten films of two thousand and eleven. So not that long ago, and a quick look shows there's some really good films, there's some pretentious films, and there's some god awful films as usual <laughs> yes yes so that'll be interesting and uh the next episode is going to be our 25th so if you've been listening Yay. all this time thank you for joining us on this journey so 25 episodes can you believe it crazy isn't it i know i know so for this for our after the endings for the 25th episode we thought we'd do something a bit different a bit special we're going to do after the endings for films which couldn't possibly have after the endings for exactly yes and those films are Thelma and louise and melancholia and if you haven't seen Melancholia, as I know a lot of people haven't, <laughs> um, I'm not going to say that you need to rush out and see it um, to to enjoy our episode or, or even feel like you have to skip over it because I'll go ahead and give you a massive spoiler alert right here uh, yeah. so that if you don't want to watch it, you don't have to. Um, but the film ends with the Earth crashing into another Earth. And is it another Earth or the moon or what is no, it? No, it's a... It's another planet. Here's the, uh, here's the IMDb description. Okay. As a planet hurtles towards a collision course with Earth, two sisters cope with the approaching doomsday in different ways. Right. So it's, it's a fun film. Yeah, yeah, good time. Lars von Trier. Uh, but, but as I said, spoiler alert, it ends with the planet and the Earth colliding and they both explode and are shattered into dust. So as you can see, yeah. it will be challenging to come up with an ending for a movie which in which all of the characters and everyone on Earth is decimated. So there you go. It's now got you don't have to watch sequel the film. written all over it. There you go. It's uh, it's not a great film, but it should be interesting to see what we come up with for after the endings for that. And of course, yes. Thelma and Louise's ending, I think, is fairly famous. If you haven't seen it, that one's worth watching. Mm. And our endings, our after the endings, will be uh, worth listening to. I'm quite looking forward to what I come up with. Anyway. Yeah, it, it will be. <laughs> it will be. Uh, I think interesting and creative mm. for sure. So uh, challenging to say the least. But I, I think yes. we can have some fun with it. Yes. So hopefully you'll join us for that. I don't think I don't think there's going to be many serial killers in it, to be honest. I, I will not be surprised, though, if you manage to work them in. <laughs> so, all right. How can people get in touch with us if they want to, Phil? Well, they can get in touch on all the usual social media channels. You know how to use social media. So go out there and use it and find After the Ending on it. There you go. And you can email us directly at AfterTheEnding at Verizon.net, which is the perfect address for our new uh, feature, which is called Blatant Product Placement. And simply What's it about, put, Mike? Well, uh, I will say that I... I cribbed this idea from another podcast, The Greatest Generation, and they took it from some other podcasts. So this is a sort of a tried-and-true podcast idea. But if you want to support our show and also either A, pimp out your own product, or B, send a shout-out to someone that you love or hate, I guess, if you want, you can send us a small fee, and we will share your message on the air. So the way it works is for $50, you can can share a personal message, which could be a birthday greeting or anniversary wish or just a shout-out to a friend who you know listens to the show. Um, Or it could be a, hey, Ma, I'm on a podcast. Yeah, there you go. It could be as simple as that. Uh, And then for $100, you can um, if you have a, a product or a website or a company that you want to promote, a new book or something like that, send us your message and we will read it out on the air and, and we'll put our usual after the ending spin on it in typical Phil and Mike fashion, have some fun with it, and we will make sure that your messages are delivered with gusto. Uh, so if you want more details on that or if you'd like to send us a blatant product placement, uh, you can just email us at afterTheEnding at Verizon.net and hopefully we'll have some fun messages to share with our listeners in the near future very good and on that note we shall bid you all adieu as always i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending uh, cooper returns oh that's a bit missed after to do she has a bit of a mess this up well at least we're not rusty at all i know yeah <laughs> she begins to fixate on the fact that cooper was unscathed Unscathed. Unscathed. Okay. Stark sneaks into Cooper's apartment and... Stark... Hang on. I want to rephrase that. We're back, everyone. 
Some things never yeah, change. Just wait till the live show. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> It'll be a complete train wreck. Yeah. Now anyone, anyone left? Yeah. Any audience? After the ending live, the dumpster yeah. fire episode. You'll want to watch this car crash. <laughs> After the ending on ice. <laughs> us, us oh. ice skating with microphones. That'd be, that'd be something. That'd be and we both yeah. are wearing those leotards with the sparkles on them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, oh, that's a vision. Yes, it is. When the wedding comes around, Sean has an emotional reunion. Sean, that's the same character. Sean has an emotional reunion with Dr. McGuire. Now we're in a whole different film where Robin Williams meets Robin Williams. <laughs> All right. When, it's like multiplicity, but well, it's Robin got, Williams. Yes, that's going to say, yeah, multiplicity. That, show, that movie comes up somewhat often in our world for a movie that isn't that good. All right, so those are our uh, bad trailer. No. So good movie. No, good, good movie. I just got the wrong way around. Yeah. Good trailer, bad movie. All right, let me do that again. All right, so that is our good movie. No. <laughs> uh, my number five. five. Yep. Yeah. I keep losing track. Get I've with it, Phil. Written down. Yeah, I've got the numbers written down next to them as well, so how am I losing track? <laughs> Seriously. Leading a heist in the, uh, the hot country. Oh, I kind of, God, my descriptive talents have just got to pass. <laughs> and on that note, I think it's time for us to bid you all adieu until next week. No, I said until next week because I can't do that because of the thing. So that is 25 episodes, 25 messed up endings. Yeah. So 25 episodes coming soon to your ears. That's right. 25 episodes of After the Ending. Oh, that's a lot. Okay. Where an American and a British man talk stupid things <laughs> about stuff. Well, we talk stupid things about movies, not just stuff. About movies, yeah. Give us yeah, credit yeah. where credit is due. Yeah. All right. Stuff about films. <laughs>